change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host today, Etienne. Today, we welcome Oliver Hanke from 123 Finance. We wanted to have them on the show to understand what scaling agroforestry looks like in practice and how investment in such large projects actually works. This interview enables us to understand how 123 operates, but also to zoom out a bit from the farm scale and think about some of the questions we have to tackle if we are to scale agroforestry. Is there a tension between delivering a return to investors and more complex production systems? Is agroforestry delivering the benefits they had planned for? Oliver does a great job at answering sincerely these questions and many more. Enjoy! Hi, Oliver. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Etienne. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thanks. And thanks for joining us today. Uh, maybe we could kick off things with an uh, introduction of uh, who you are and you know, how you got involved with 123. Uh, of course, of course. Okay, so my name is Oliver Hanke. I'm uh, the chief sustainability officer and also uh, responsible for the marketing, basically selling the production that we have at 123. And uh, I've been with One Two Three for several years now, basically since the since the foundation of the company. I was involved with um, the the processes that led to setting up One Two Three, and um, uh, yeah, been part of a management team ever since. And uh, from the background, I'm I'm not necessarily a farmer. Uh, I had. Uh, 10 years in, in finance before I was in, in, in real estate business, um, but not as a broker, but uh, doing actually quantitative analysis, sort of structuring big real estate deals. So um, this my background is more economics than uh, agronomics, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe you can tell us how, um, um, how one, two, three started and, you know, uh, how did you and, and I, I, I know Richard, I don't know the other um, uh, teams of the management team, but uh, how, how you got all interested in agroforestry and how it all started? Yeah, it's, as you know, it's not, uh, I mean, it's gaining a lot of traction now, which is great to see, but uh, it isn't exactly a topic that, uh, that was on the uh, main investor agenda, I don't know, 10 years ago, not even five years ago. So it's been changing a lot. Um, one to three has been set up at the end of 2016. So it's a, it's a fairly young company, uh, but it didn't come out of nowhere, basically. So, uh, we, uh, Richard, myself, a couple of other people, we had been in the space already for several years, uh, working for a German company, uh, and, and with a German company called Forest Finance, um, which is all about establishing uh, mixed sustainable forests in tropical regions uh, and this is what we did already for several years sort of raising funds from uh, more the the, the private sector uh, individuals i always say uh, they did fund they did crowdfunding before crowdfunding even existed 
And um, that gradually moved from reforestation and afforestation projects, which of course is super important, um, to, um, to looking at agroforestry, how agroforestry components can be introduced into those forestry systems, make them a bit more financially interesting uh, and attractive. And, um, and that led to a particular focus on, on cocoa. And um, the objective was obviously always to scale this up, to, to see if inst institutional investors can be interested for these topics of agroforestry, sustainable forestry, regenerative agricultural practices. And um, that was a long, long, hard way. And it was rewarded uh, around 2016 uh, with uh, winning or convincing a group of German pension funds to, to establish a sustainable forestry mandate. And that was a big success, uh, of course, to, to, to convince an institutional investor of that size um, to, to focus on the topic, to invest, invest into this, uh, this subject and to establish a, a portfolio of projects that does it. And um, on the back of uh, these discussions, we set up one to Tree as a company that is dedicated to uh, investments into sustainable agroforestry uh, with regenerative practices um, in the institutional investor space. But um, it, we needed a, a fresh setup with uh, particular processes and that's how we set it up and set up the company in, in Berlin at the time. Could you give us an idea of the size of one 2 3 at the moment? I mean, how many projects are you running and in what countries? Sure, sure, sure. So um, we have, I already mentioned cocoa as one of our core competences. So you may guess uh, what kind of climate zones we are active in. Uh, so there's a strong focus on, uh, on tropical and subtropical areas. Um, not necessarily because it has to be in the tropics. We're just basically saying, okay, uh, which commodity value chains are broken? Um, so it's not only about regenerative agriculture, it's also about trying about the social agenda, trying to fix uh, commodity value change, such as the, the cocoa industry. And we found that in particular in the tropics, um, the, the social makeup of, of the production value chain uh, is very unjust, you know, be it in cocoa, be it in coffee, be it in other crops like these. And so um, what we have established now is a portfolio of 12 projects, um, which are predominantly in, in, in Latin America, uh, around the tropical belt. So we have made investments from Ecuador to Guatemala. Um, and um, we also have started in, in very arid zones. So we have started a, a, an organic dates project in Morocco, so it's the one that is not in Latin America. And so I wouldn't say that we are focused on tropical areas. We're focused on very vulnerable environments, if you see what I mean. In terms of size, uh, we uh, have so far invested into the ground about uh, 160 million US dollars. And we have commitments from investors um, uh, of uh, at around 500 million. 
Um, so that's that's a great achievement. Wow. So what that means is basically we have commitment to to invest, but as you know, uh, these systems aren't built overnight. It takes a lot of time. And so over the years, the money is put into the ground. And so far, basically 160 million have been put into the ground. What do you mean by uh, put into the ground um, <laughs> compared to, I mean, committed and what you've actually spent? Well, I mean, how does a typical agriculture project look like? Uh, you, you, you need your farm infrastructure. You know, you need road access, you need processing facilities, uh, but obviously also you need to plant a lot. Um, and um, planting in, in biodiverse agroforests is neither fast nor is it cheap um, because you have to design, uh, you want uh, one or several cash crops in the system, you want a multi-species approach. So you're not, you're not planting everything overnight and then you, you get the results the next day. It basically takes time, a lot of planning. Uh, some of the areas are irrigated, so you need to install irrigation systems. You need to, need to look at the water infrastructure. Where does the water come from? Uh, and all of this needs to be planned and, and designed and, and implemented and and that's what I mean with put into the ground hmm. committed is basically that the money is spoken so in the sense that if you if you have a project and you know it will cost you I don't know I, I just say a number 30 million dollars uh, to develop a, a large farm um, then um, that is an investment plan that takes several years so uh, that funding is secured basically so you can draw on that money it's been committed um but uh, it's not sitting there for years to uh, to to wait to be used so um that's that's the difference between invested and committed basically so at the moment you're saying that uh 160 million are, are you're working with that money injecting it into different projects like it's it's already happening now well that's been done it's a big achievement. It's it's twelve projects, and a part of that is uh, involves obviously buying land. Uh, we we don't only uh, use land or lease land or work with cooperatives. We predominantly buy land, and there's a whole discussion to be had around that, obviously. But you you acquire the land, and uh, the first thing you do is uh, improve the infrastructure that you have there, and uh, so there's a lot of spending happening very fast uh, after you start a project. You know? And then over the next two, three, four, five years, you establish um, your, your actual farming. And um, that's, that's how it works, basically. We'll come back to a lot of the things you said, uh, because I think there's many fascinating things to unpack there. But first, I wanted us to maybe take uh, an example of one of your projects and that you kind of walk us through that project uh you know it's uh, when you implemented it its size its productions just that we can have a, a really clear idea of uh what your work looks like on the ground absolutely happy to do so um i th i think that the best example that i can walk you through is actually our largest farm it's uh, it's um it's it's a diversified estate in guatemala uh which is called chimel uh, it's it's a beautiful farm which has uh, five thousand hectares, so it's 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 huge. Uh, in a 
difficult terrain. It's in the Alta Vera Pass of Guatemala, so the altitude change on the farm ranges from, I think it's 500 meters above sea level up to 1200 meters. So this is not a plane where we uh, establish something. It's, it's a whole uh, three-dimensional system, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You, you have to think about what grows where. Uh, you have lower elevations, you have higher elevations, and not every, every crop and not every system is suitable uh, to those different elevations. It can be very hot and sticky in the low elevations. It can be very cold and exposed in the, in the high elevations. And as you know, I mean, that's what regenerative agriculture is all about. It's, it's always site-specific. It's always about understanding where you're acting, where you're planting. Uh, and, and and not only understanding the soil, but also obviously the, the climate and, and the extremes that you're acting in there. So I think this this is the best example I can give you. Every project we have is unique and different uh, and, and in different environments from very wet tropics to, to very dry environments. But I think um, talking to Fushi Melt that, that uh, illustrates best what we do in the, uh, on the ground, basically. And digging a bit more into this example, uh, what are the main productions uh, already, you know, already there or that you're planning in the design? Mm -hmm. So this place is not new. So um, it's it's a farm that has been established in some shape uh, for several decades already. And um, half of it is, is forest no? uh, and predominantly natural forest, um, but also some, some plantations. Um, and um, the rest is predominantly about coffee, so originally Arabica coffee. And when we got involved a few years ago, uh, we looked at what can be done there, uh, also what, 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 well, first of all, what grows well in, in that particular environment, but also what is Guatemala about, what, what does Guatemala stand for in terms of uh, marketable products. And um, it's, uh, it's very good for, for cocoa, uh, for coffee, uh, for cardamom, and, uh, and uh, rubber as well. So those are the main cash crops that you will see in the farm. Uh, you see in the higher elevations, uh, very extensive um, uh, coffee plantations, Arabica coffee. Uh, in, the, in the medium elevations, you see um, uh, more robusta, you see some rubber plantations. And in the lower elevations, you will find more uh, cocoa and now also a bit more banana planting. You know? And when I name one of those, uh, it's always in an agroforestry system. So a hectare always produces more than just one thing. You know, uh, so it, we like to combine with with rubber trees, um, culture basically with rubber trees a lot. So what you typically see is, for example, uh, rows of cocoa. Um, intercrop with uh, with rubber trees um, some some plantain or uh, uh, banana in between for the early shade um, 
in the high elevations you see more forestry models, uh, you see pine combined with cardamom. Um, cardamom is, for, the, for those who don't know or don't like it, it's, it's a spice that is uh, very much used in the Arab and, and Indian world. And uh, funnily enough, Guatemala is the largest exporter of, of cardamom. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very unique uh, environment. It's not something that is grown in many places, uh, but in Guatemala it is widespread and it's, uh, it, uh, it grows well and it attracts good prices. Um, so yeah, that's what this farm is about, basically. Um, uh, coffee, cardamom, cacao, three C's if you want some. Wow. And to understand the, the situation when you took over the farm, what were the main problems you were facing and, you know, um, what kind of solutions did you design uh, to face these problems? Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many dimensions to it. You can imagine a 5,000 hectare estate in, in, in such a, let's say, difficult terrain. Uh, is not easy to manage. And uh, the, the previous owner uh, family, they had already done uh, actually a multi-generation project, uh, a great job at establishing, at establishing uh, first plantations. Um, and they had a good social agenda, you know, many communities, many people actually got there to work uh, in the farms, uh, whole small villages got set up um, by the workers. Uh, and um, people have been given land. Uh, they had done a lot of work already with the with the indigenous Ketchi communities, and so the a good groundwork was already done. Uh, what was needed was to to scale it up and to create more value uh, from the production, which uh, by and large was sold locally uh, into the to local traders, uh, not exclusively. I mean, they've done a, a good job already at marketing some of the production, but there's so much more coffee and cocoa and rubber and cardamom to be produced now that uh, we're, we're looking to you know, establish those big uh, export relationships. Um, a lot of uh, detailed work had to happen, more design in, in agroforestry systems, sort of how can these biodiverse systems be optimized, uh, how can they produce more, whilst at the same time using less inputs. When you took over the farm, the systems were separated, like you had forest on one side and then cacao production on the other, or was there already some agroforestry practices that were implemented? There was, there was some. So what, how do you have to imagine it? So what you see is um, the, the, the coffee, the Arabica, um, you know, you can grow it under shade, you can grow it without shade. And um, because it's such a large system, uh, it's very hard to establish all of that under shade. Then you have the hilltops uh, where you really have native forest still, uh, and that needs needed to be protected and connected to each other so that you don't have like isolated hilltops, but uh, that the, 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 the animals that live there can can migrate from one place to the other. Um, there were some cocoa plantations, but the infrastructure wasn't so great. And a lot of emphasis was, was put on designing uh, those, those agroforestry systems I was talking about to bring in more biodiversity. 
and the whole topic of, of cardamom uh, in the forest. So basically having a, a more of a forestry model that is enriched with, with spices production. Uh, there were some some test plots, let's say, uh, but it wasn't done at scale, and this is this is what we took up. So I think a lot of good ideas were already there, that were then really scaled up with the institutional capital that I've been talking about um, earlier, and that's that's what makes it so great, you know. To to I'm not saying we invented everything that is being done there. We have a very good team there, um, uh, but we we allowed. We, we allowed it to scale up, um, to to professionalize more, um, to to have different trials. Uh, I mean, just as an example, I I've just been there actually. I've been there in uh, in February, and uh, they show me a new test plot they have with with pineapple. It's actually five different crops in that system: pineapple, uh, the rubber I mentioned, and uh, banana. Uh, and uh, cocoa and uh, another tree species. So it's great to see these test plots, to see how they behave, and then to have the ability and the available capital to scale that up if, you, if it works and it creates the benefits that you, that you want to see. So just to, to sum up and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at the moment um, you're at a phase where you're testing different possibilities, but still the main production system is kind of remains. And then the plan is to, once you've identified promising, uh, you know, diversification uh, strategies, then upscale that on the, on the whole farm. Mm, yes. So that's already happening. So we did that. I'm talking a little bit about the past here. Uh, so uh, we did, for example, introduce um, Robusta coffee that, wasn't something that was uh, grown there in the past. So they had a lot of experience with Arabica coffee in the higher elevations, as I mentioned. It's quite a big coffee farm. Um, the Robusta is something new, and that's been planted this year. Uh, there will be more to come. And uh, Robusta, well, the name indicates it, uh, it can deal much better with, with changing temperatures. Uh, can also thrive in uh, the, the, the Arabica needs cooler temperatures and the Robusta is a, is a good solid one sort of to connect the low elevations with the high elevations. So that's tested and is rolled now out at scale. Uh, the cocoa, obviously also, they did that already quite a bit. Uh, they have a interesting mix of, of uh, aromatic uh, cocoa varieties and that's being scaled up now. But there's still, I mean, this used to be a cattle ranch and there's still so much area that can be converted from degraded cattle ranch to uh, to um, uh, agroforestry systems. Um, we're also thinking about um, uh, silver pastoral systems, basically, but we haven't done that yet. So you're right in a way that we're trying different things and then uh, there's still so much area that can be developed that uh, that we put that we can put that into practice at larger scale but the plan is there you know the plan is established the natural forest obviously gets protected and some areas enriched again and um and so it's it's clear what we want to do where do you get this knowledge in uh because you know um agroforestry although it's practiced uh, probably more in the tropics than, than uh, in Europe. So maybe there's already 
more knowledge um, generated in those types of climates, but it still remains quite experimental compared to other um, production methods, at least at least a large scale. So how are you going about, um, you know, discovering what works and, and also what kind of knowledge are you using? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, agroforestry, regenerative practices, uh, there's quite a lot of, as you say, you know, I mean, it's still uh, something that is in development, but it, there is a, has been a lot of research uh, in temperate climate zones. Uh, when it comes to tropical agriculture, there isn't that much research out there. There isn't that much experience out there. This obviously uh, um, traditional practices, uh, which we're learning from, but those need to be adapted and improved on uh, without losing the, the, the core elements of them. So what we have built internally is uh, a team of technical experts on exactly those topics. Uh, so we have uh, a team, technical services team, we call it, uh, which consists of specialists in, in different professions uh, within agriculture. So be it on, you know, soil health, be it on phytosanitary uh, management, be it on water management. Um, we have a GIS experts to, to help us with the design of those systems, um, a couple of others. So it's, it's quite a sizable team by now. And uh, this team is, is deeply involved in the project design together with the local teams. So the local teams bring the local knowledge, uh, reference uh, data and, and experience simply with working the, with this environment, what, what grows there, how, how, it, how it can be designed. And the central team brings in the, the experience from, from many projects, smaller, larger, conventional agriculture, regenerative projects, um, and brings all of this together to design something, something better. And that's part of our mission. You know, our mission is not just to build good farms, it's also to, to change the way farming is practiced within our farms, of course, but also beyond. You know, we want to be role models to an extent for for other farmers who who look at what we're doing and they see that it works and they can embrace those practices. I wanted to understand who exactly is working on the farm then, because five uh, five thousand hectares seems so big, and you know, um, how many farmers are are working the land and what does the local team look like? Yeah, sure. So we're not cooperative setups. No? So we actually uh, we, we own land, uh, we establish professional farm teams, um, but we work with cooperatives, we partner with communities and so on. So it's, it's, it's quite an elaborate setup that we established there. So you have to imagine a, a local management team um with a, a permanent staff base in this case of uh, of Shimer, we're talking about roughly 300 people that are permanently employed they're full-time employees working in the farm and then yes you obviously have peak times uh harvest seasons where you're bringing in some temporary workers uh several hundreds uh, in this particular case um who uh, who help with the harvest and our objective, obviously, is to create as many permanent jobs as possible. 
but also those temporary jobs are inc incredibly important for those communities. In particular, uh, in those traditional catchy communities, uh, it's it's well traditionally it's not seen that a woman has a has a, a formal job and formal employment, and that's something, for example, that changed so that. Um, uh, the, the women in the communities, they, they get an opportunity to, to earn a living as well, to get into those farms uh, during the harvest. And so that's what you typically see. And then this is complemented with our one to three teams. Uh, I mentioned this technical services team, but there's also, of course, uh, there are controllers, there are project supervisors who are making sure that, uh, that the financials are okay, that, uh, that the plan is implemented. Uh, we have certain audit layers, you know, the investors want to make sure that the money is used in the right way. So uh, we bring in external experts, we bring in external auditors. So it's quite an elaborate setup of, of, of doing uh, and, and also layers of control that, that happen uh, all in a good spirit, all in a partnership spirit, of course. Um, and then all of this is connecting with the surroundings. So we have uh, actually in that particular farm, we have two smallholder programs running. Uh, one is called the uh, Uno por Uno uh, program where uh, coffee farmers are, are organized, small farmers, um, and this farm, but also other farms uh, help them to, uh, to produce better and to also sell the product. Um, and there's another project which is relatively new. It's called the Karkao uh, Forest. So it's about cacao and cardamom. And uh, again, it's about uh, helping farmers to have planting material that is high quality, to teach them how to plant it, when to harvest it, how to treat it, and tend the, tend the production over time, and then to help market it. So there's the central team but there's a, a lot of community interaction happening as well. I wanted to ask you about the investor side. Um, could you give us an explanation of, you know, uh, who is exactly investing in, in projects uh, like the one you just described and what kind of, what, what, what is the deal, you know, uh, what can they expect out of it and uh, what is uh, their expectations and um, yeah, the advantages for them to go and invest in a project like this one instead of any other project. Yeah. Okay. So, who are typical investor groups um, or types of investors that are willing to look at this kind of project, which certainly isn't straightforward? Um, you need someone who uh, has, to an extent, patient capital. So, investing in any real asset is not something that realizes value overnight. Uh, you need someone who has experience with alternative investments uh, or private equity. And so in the sense that uh, you are buying land values, infrastructure uh, in, in, in countries, in, in this case in Guatemala. But basically those are emerging markets with, um, let's say, uh, imperfect market structures. So you, you need investors who understand the risks that they are inter entering into. It's not only at the farm level, you know, you have country risks, you have currency risks. You need to understand uh, 
how the money flows into those countries, how money is taxed there, how it flows back to, to you as an investor ultimately. So we're talking about professional investors. Um, and we're talking about uh, larger investors who have specialists in-house who understand these risks. Um, this can be um, pension funds. This can be endowments. It can also be uh, large specialized asset managers in the, in the sustainable investment space and large family offices uh, who you often find that family offices uh, they have um, a strong uh, agenda, you know, uh, content-wise. So, uh, as you say, the, the principal, basically the family, the owners behind it, the capital behind it, uh, may have very specific investment objectives. Um, uh, and they don't often don't shy away from, from real assets. They think intergenerational, so they have a long-term vision of how their money should be used in, a, in a, hopefully in a good way. And so you're looking for these kind of um, investor groups that are professional, have experience with risk management, they understand the challenges ahead. Um, and they have, uh, in this particular case, a strong sustainability agenda, because uh, else why would you invest into something that is a bit more complicated than just buying into a, let's say, a very modern, very professionally run, but conventional farm, mm. um, which is much, much better documented. You have more data out there. It's easier to sell the product and so on and so on. So, so that's what you need, uh, those, those groups. And now here's the challenge with, with these kind of projects that we have. Um, and, and you, as you are very active in the field of regenerative agriculture, you know that uh, the, the kinds of projects that are very good on these practices, they tend to be not so big. So we're talking about small projects because the, the work is is very detailed, you know, very detail-oriented. Yeah. And um, at the same time, the kind of capital that has these abilities that I described are big groups. You know, They have to manage billions of dollars, billions of euro. And... Um, that is not a good match you know you you have uh, uh, investment groups who, who need to manage billions of assets and they cannot make a one million investment you know, it just doesn't work from the setup um, so what you need on the one hand is that the the models in regenerative agriculture need to be able to be scaled up make them make them bigger so they become investable and they become worth the time of these investors and on the other hand, uh, these investors need to work or come around the reality that those types of investments are smaller. You know, it's not a 500 million infrastructure investment or renewable energy investment. It's uh, it's a farm and we can bring it up maybe to a 40 or 50 million dollar investment. But um, beyond that, it gets a bit difficult, you know. Mm. So... This is where we see our role to to close this gap, you know, to to bring up those practices to scale, and at the same time to make it accessible uh, for investors. That's fascinating because it's it's true that um, agroforestry and regenerative agriculture in general requires uh, such careful management, and often is is still at a stage where it's fairly experimental and it's more uh, the case of individuals finding solutions that work in their local context rather than having um, 
one fit all uh, methodology that we could, you know, unroll without any risk. And I'm just wondering, uh, how are your investors capable of, of accepting that risk? Because fundamentally today, it is still um, risky in a way, because we don't have, you know, as you were saying, like it's much safer, a, a conventional farm that has a lot of data. And here it's still something very innovative. So are you still able to really make a financial case? Or is it more that you, you convince these investors that it's something that's, uh, you know, risky, but worth developing? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest about this. So I I would not say that, you know, all of the farming we do is fully regenerative agriculture. You know, we are trying to incorporate more and more principles, actions, activities, uh, research into our into our projects, you know. And some of the purists in, in, in your community, they will say like, yeah, okay, that's good. But, you know, it's not what I would describe. What, what I'm doing is different, you know, mm. and that, that's true. So what we're doing is um, in, a, in, a, in a managed risk approach to bring in more and more practices that don't come at the sacrifice of uh, of profitability at least not you know uh, unknowingly you know we're not risking the capital of the investors uh, starting to experiment with the with the money you know like, oh, let's see how this goes we had a one hectare plot let's scale it up to a thousand and see what goes yeah. work like that um, so and also you have to see not not all of the projects that we that we have the 12 the 12 farms that i mentioned or some of them are forestry projects but say the, the 12 projects we have some of them started their life out as conventional monocultures, you know, uh, and it's not that easy to change a 10 year old monoculture to a biodiverse uh, um, uh, agroforestry system, at least not overnight. But what you can always do is to start using um, regenerative practices. And for that, we were looking at that as well. You know, we've, we've established a whole curriculum um, an internal training program for all our staff to to fully embrace those practices because, you know, they they come in some of them come from from conventional farming you know and they have to embrace those principles and have to understand how to change their ways and so um, we designed a whole curriculum around you know soil organic matter how to manage it how to maintain it how to increase it um how how uh, different plant combinations are beneficial or not and all of this uh we thought about it like yeah should we have like a a, a clear policy that says this needs to be applied this needs to be applied or should it always be in the local context and and you know the answer it's always about the local context so you cannot have a one-size-fits-all activity um, plan basically where you say okay everywhere we farm we do these three things you know it doesn't work like that you need to look at the very specific environment you need to look at that plot you need to look at that sub farm the 50 hectare area close to the river or up on the hill and make some decisions in the field on a day-to-day -day basis basically but how do you how do you balance this i mean when you take a project um you know how do you decide you know, how quickly do we go? How innovative do we go? Because 
at the end of the day, that's a question that uh, most farmers face at some points. Unless you start something, you know, completely uh, uh, regenerative, if that means anything, from the beginning. But, you know, that doesn't guarantee you an economic model. Um, you know, that's a possibility. But often people have, you know, a production system which has, you know, pros and cons and uh, might not be perfect. And then you're trying to slowly move towards regenerative practices. But the, the speed at which you go and the amount of risk you take is always the question. And, you know, how do you assess that? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, you're, you're right. When you get the chance to design something completely new from scratch, that's the most convenient situation to be in. You know, we have knowledgeable people, we have access to a lot of research. And so we can design, hopefully, the best possible system. But if you if you have a running farm, you know, and that farm needs to make a profit, I mean, it needs to pay for, it needs to pay the wages, it needs to, uh, to pay the bills, basically. How do you take those risks? So we're looking for opportunities uh, for change. So um, with, with our partners and consultants and advisors together, we define a theory of change for every farm. So there's a theory of change on the social side, you know, how a farm should change. Uh, and there's a theory of change on the biodiversity side of things. And that theory of change is obviously a long-term vision of how to go from, from A to B to Z over time. And what you need to do is to, 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 to check your progress against that vision uh, periodically and frequently and say like, am I actually progressing or am I not doing the things that I should be doing to achieve my theory of change? And uh, at the same time, you cannot just fully embrace your theory of change at the, at the sacrifice of profitability. That's, that's correct. So you need those opportunities where either an area has been aging and it needs to be replanted or uh, regrafted anyway, or um, you you you're looking at uh, at a, maybe a crop that you know doesn't sell that well anymore, so you decide to introduce something new, and those redesign opportunities give you an opportunity to 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 change the system there and to embrace the research that you maybe have conducted on a smaller plot uh, for the last couple of years and say like, okay, yes, I can actually um, produce less. Uh, sorry, produce more, but with less inputs. Uh, so uh, we we test those different uh, systems, and then we're gradually moving from from the established plot or the established approach to a new approach. If you see what I mean, um, and uh, so you're not experimenting in the blind. You're actually going into a change situation knowingly. At the same time, you can do you can introduce many practices without entering risks you know so uh, just i mean i don't want to start talking about another farm but there's a farm in panama called Quango. Uh, it's also about cocoa it's a, it's a very wet and tropical environment at the atlantic coast um so it's, it's cocoa it's, it's native forest uh, is uh, planting a lot of planting uh, production there um so we looked at how to develop that farm and uh, we went from, you know, the principle do not disturb, you know, so rather than you know, doing deep tilling and, and all of this, 
we actually uh, decided, no, let's do it differently. You know, let's plant the, the cocoa actually just just op carefully opening up the soil, leaving the, 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 the top cover, the ground cover, sorry, um, undisturbed and putting the cocoa in and 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 leaving basically uh, uh just opening it up planting the cocoa in obviously carefully tending for it but not going the traditional way of land preparation uh, um, but do it in a very careful way and it, it seems to work very well you know it's, it's it's progressing well and so we're embracing those practices and we don't think it's a big risk it's something that we try and we have the big benefit that we have 12 farms, you know, so you can try things in different places and you have a network, a knowledge network that exchanges uh, amongst each other. And so you don't have to do all the experiments in the same place, you know, uh, uh, you can learn uh, from what, I don't know, the, the, the farming team in Chimelp did and compare that with uh, what the farming team in, in Kwango does. Or what the what the guys in the Ambrosia project in the Dominican Republic do, so um, I think there the portfolio thought helps a lot, you know, to to de-risk and say so like, yeah, we oh we already did this last year and it works very well, and that gives the the local team the confidence to to do that as well because it's been tested and it's been tried and it's been tried by someone you trust because you know them you work with them you you meet them at workshops regularly and uh, yeah that's what we're trying to establish how is that uh, theory of change comparing uh, to what you're seeing on the ground then because to clarify my thoughts i think uh, if we go back to agroforestry specifically the theory of change of agroforestry is clear uh, and often you know available Let's say, you know, we can make re more resilient agricultural systems, reduce inputs, reduce pest pressures, uh, diversify production. All of this uh, sounds amazing. And um, I'm not saying that it's not happening, but we also see the flip side of it, which is uh, diverse systems require more knowledge, require more management time, require more marketing time sometimes because you have different products or commodities to sell depending on, on which scale we're talking about and many kind of practical problems and um, this is what I find exciting talking to you today is to really understand you know obviously you you set up this project with uh, the hypothesis that uh, agroforestry could deliver all of this and could at the same time regenerate these farms and deliver financial returns do you think that's happening are you validated in there or do you see that tension between uh, the the regenerative uh, dimension and the financial return dimension well there is a certain clash i agree and i mean well first of all you have to ask yourself what none of this means anything per se you know agroforestry uh, you know there's no uh, of course there's a definition of that but it's such a wide field that you can interpret it in in many ways you know it's the same with regenerative agriculture. Suddenly everyone is uh, regenerative. It's amazing how they change overnight. Um, and so it, those terms aren't defined. So you have, to, you have to find your own definition of what that means to you. If you are a group that is serious about that, you need to obviously defend that about to, to, uh, against uh, other people who have maybe a different opinion about that. But uh, so first of all, it's about defining what you're doing there and how far uh, you go down the rabbit hole, if you want so. 
Um, but secondly, um, and I believe we 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 are genuine genuine about this and and, and pushing the boundaries of, of what is possible. But here we come to your question: What is possible is in the context of of profitability. You know, in the sense of, am I willing to to sacrifice or to to bring the costs up to such a high level because the attention of detail for uh, for these systems uh, is so high that you know my labor costs, my uh, the, the time I spend uh, on, on tending to to a particular area is so high that overall it doesn't it doesn't translate into the profitability I need to bring in the capital. So that's a that's a trade off to be found uh, or an optimum to be found. And what what our uh, head of operations uh, always says, you know, what we're about is to find that optimum. It's not about short-term maximization of yields, nor is it about short-term short optimization of uh, of regenerative practice, uh, maximization of regenerative practices. It is about finding that optimum where you can be in a healthy, profitable zone. Uh, and you're you're running your farm in a credible way and a uh, uh, very transparent way, and you communicate what you're doing uh, to to the investors, and you find those groups who are willing to 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 invest in those models, and they don't expect the double-digit returns that they may be able to squeeze out of uh, high-yielding conventional agriculture, but they want to see some returns and they want to see the returns that you communicated to them. Mm. So it's very much about trust and transparency. You need to explain what you're doing. You need to explain what impact that may have on your on your costs. You know, you may also, um, you, you need to, sell better you know if it costs more to do it then you need to find those buyers who are willing to pay more for the product so that's why we also build a sales team you know product sales team because it's you cannot just have higher costs but then still sell to the local trader and it gives you the same uh, price as as it gives to the conventional team sure. so uh, so you need to find those buyers in the market that are acting more ethically and they are interested in 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 products that have been sourced uh you know traceable but also they care about the way it's been produced and those buyers exist and you need to find them you need to convince them so it's it's that holistic management but first and foremost you need to explain what you're doing to the investors and then you will find that there are groups out there who who buy into that and they see that there is the long-term value in that change because I believe, and we as a group believe that in the long term, what we're doing will become the standard model of farming. You know, yeah. it should, be, or, or there will be no farming anymore. That's the alternative. You know, mm. um, so, but let's not get into this sort of preaching kind of <laughs> discussion. <laughs> but I wanted to. I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you know, I definitely want to go into the sales bit. But I wanted to finish a bit on the investor bit because you're saying finding that optimum between profitability and, uh, let's say, you know, environmental services or regeneration. I don't know how we want to call it. But how do you how do you make that optimum? Then do you kind of have this analysis before where you decide on a certain return on investment, and then you know you you have to fix yourself to delivering that, and then you allow yourself 
some uh, experimentation that stay within that target of profitability? Or, you know, how do you tackle that optimum? How do you um, calculate your kind of, what, what is your planning process? Yeah, well, it's, well, first of all, you start with some return expectations that are communicated. So you know what the investor needs. I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned pension funds, you know. You also have to see that uh, a lot of investors, well, they have their own investment uh, or their own return objectives in the sense that they are working for other people. It's not their money either. You know, it's the money of the people who will be pensioners in this fund, the beneficiaries. So, so they have uh, returns that they need to deliver to you know, pay for your pension or my pension. Um, and and that's what they need to need to see in terms of return. Uh, and and you in order to deliver that, there's a big transition a transmission uh, mechanism between you know what is being sold as cocoa or coffee or timber uh, and what ends up in the pocket of, of the investor basically from that. Sure. In terms of overheads and taxation and what you all have. So you can work backwards and say like, okay, this is what I need to achieve at the farm level. Now, and then the question is, is that achievable with the practices that we have in mind, with that change agenda? And and there you are in a constant uh, iteration where you have to see like, okay, if I do this, it's not only a, a question about, am I doing it? The second question is, am I doing it now? Should I do it now or should I do it later? Uh, or should I do it over time or should I do it in one go? Um, and are there also other sources of funding out there, ground-based and so on, that, that may be uh, able to, to finance those transitions? You know, it's usually the transition phase is the most difficult part. You know, I believe, I believe that a, a fully productive, biodiverse, regeneratively managed uh, uh, plot of land that is fully productive it, it can deliver the same financial results as as a as a mo conventional monoculture you know or more but to get there takes an awful lot of time you know? and and that period of time uh, that is hard to get through because there you don't make that much money and it costs more to establish it and some things fail and then you need to start from scratch um, and 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 that process basically that needs that is difficult. I'm not saying we we are we have all the answers there, but um, uh, we we plan some of that into our financial models. We communicate that uh, ramp up time. We have investors who who have that patience that they don't expect you know planting today returns tomorrow. Um, but uh, also that patience is limited. You know, so you cannot do all that you wish to do at the same time. And we're currently working on also um, bringing in uh, other sources of funding, match funding, where you basically bring your own money and you find a, a grant or a public donor who's willing to invest into that research together with you, you know, um, to have research plots, to have uh, 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 test areas on different topics and 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 then once you've established okay this works it's an optimum it's different to 
and sometimes there are different different optimums you know the there's the okay i put in maximum inputs and i get the highest yields uh, and there's the other extreme of no i don't touch that land and i just reap whatever is coming out of there and we're looking obviously at, at something in between that sure uh, you know but uh, i imagine that must be difficult because uh, there's so little data on the actual financial viability of uh, these innovative production models it must be quite difficult for you then to to be able to give a really precise number in terms of return and, and, and incorporating that complexity into the project? Well, yes and no. I mean, um, we, to be honest, are, I think quite, quite good on the, on the, on the, the cost projections in terms of, you know, I mean, ultimately you have a permanent, you have a permanent level of staff there uh that knows what they're doing um so those labor costs uh, are clear you know i mean those are the people you're working with and uh, the question is more what can they what can they achieve so is your is your 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 timing right you know i think so i'm less concerned about the cost uh, planning for example and more about you know is the is the is the change agenda is it not too ambitious you know are we not moving too fast is it is it possible to do several hundred hectares in that way every year you know or does it take more time uh, and that uh, you also know what you can sell the the products for you know i mean by now we have a good portfolio of buyers uh, who like our products and so we know what we can achieve price-wise in the market so you know, have a good understanding of your costs and you have a good understanding of the prices you can achieve in the market the question <laughs> the the question mark in between is uh, the the change agenda you know so like how fast can your production change and ramp up so uh, and and how much will it actually produce and those are the question marks that you have because those systems haven't been tried and tested for decades and centuries, you know. Uh, so if you have a, to come back to that Shimelb example, if you have a system where you have robusta, uh, cacao, rubber, uh, plantain, all sort of on the same hectare, uh, planted in, in innovative ways and tended in a, in a very careful manner, you know, like looking at managing the nutrient cycle, uh, uh the water cycle all of that very carefully um you have a, an expectation of how your your yields will look like um but that's difficult to 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 manage you know how will the yield exactly look like in year four after planting or your year five after planting and that's 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 where we're still gathering data and getting better and where we also sometimes uh um realizing hey it's been slower you know it's been slower we don't have the production yet that we thought we would have but i i i'm impressed um at the fact that you're managing this on such a large scale because um already on a on the scale of an individual small farm it's already sometimes difficult you know to anticipate uh what you can actually get out of it because you might you might have anticipate in theory that your inputs will reduce because you'll have a more resilient production system that will require less uh, uh you know pest control or whatever but actually anticipating that and how uh, that expresses in the local context is is so difficult and um 
yeah, if, if you guys managed to pull that off on, on multiple projects at the same time, uh, congratulations. Well, I mean, don't congratulate us too early. <laughs> I mean, we've we're a couple of years, well, a bit more than a couple, but a few years into this process and it takes time. But, you know, so far we're doing, I think, well. Um, but you're absolutely right because you have your theory, you're like, okay, I do this and then this effect will happen and that will bring down costs or I can reduce that input, you know? So that's your theory. And in principle, everything's fine with that theory, but then the reality is we're acting in nature, you know? So your theory gets uh, thrown into the bin because suddenly it's a drought year or it's a, it's super wet. It's been raining like crazy, or I don't know, you're doing well and then a hurricane goes through. So, which is probably not what happens too much in the south of France, but it also happens there. It's, it's maybe a bit more temperate, but... Uh, no, we have droughts, uh, don't worry. Don't worry, we have our own <laughs> our own challenges as well. <laughs> so, so, you know, your plans go well and then you need to deal with, you know, just realities in, in the farm. And uh, that happens to us uh, as it happens to a smaller farm. The difference is... If you are a small farm team, then you're you're one, two, or three people uh, with with all this knowledge, uh, and to to react to that. And in our case, we are more. You know, uh, you have knowledgeable people on the farms who can take fast actions. You have that support team, technical services team that you know can bring in specialists to say like, okay, look, I need to I need to improve on that on that irrigation system. How am I going to do it? uh and, and these people have the experience of many projects you know uh, so that's a support layer that you may not have as an as a standalone farmer you know you have to you have to rely on google or higher expensive consultants you know? yeah but i imagine that um as an organization it must be very difficult to combine both kind of a centralized decision-making process in the sense that you, you still have, you know, one, two, three with your, your central team managing different projects, uh, managing the relationship with investors. So keeping that cohesive whole, co cohesive um, structure, but at the same time, having a de decentralized uh, structures as well so that you can be responsive to local um, conditions and things that come up because, you know, a big advantage you have if you're just one farmer on your land is that the you're able to react to situations very quickly and to make decisions that only involve a few people and uh, observe very closely the feedback loops between what you're implementing and what you're observing and how the land is responding. And um, doing that at such a scale seems really complex. Yeah, and I, th I think you're mentioning a very important point here. You, you need to, if you want to do this, uh, in a good way, then you need good local trusted partners who know what they're doing and are also able and willing to take decisions when they are required, you know, and those decisions need to be aligned with your corporate thinking and strategy and development process, if you see what I mean. So um, what I think doesn't work is if you just treat those farms as sort of contract farming, you know, uh, and the, the people, the local people are not empowered to take, you know, to think for themselves and to take those decisions. 
um, that doesn't work in practice because you have to take a million decisions every day. Uh, and uh, if, if, if the local manager ultimately doesn't care because you know, he doesn't feel like he's, he's taking ownership for, for, for the farm, he's just you know, a hired gun if you want so, then that will not work. So I think we're very happy and lucky with, uh, with uh, the, the partners that we have in the farms. Um, we also had failures in that regard that we had local teams um, that, that, I don't know, didn't somehow quite connect to our vision and they didn't implement what we thought they were implementing. They were taking decisions that actually had some bad consequences. Uh, and so we learned from that and more and more we are actually involved ourselves in the farming. Hmm. Uh, so we're not an investor, we're not just a sort of technical support group, but we are very actively uh, involved in, uh, in the farm operational setup, you know, so we, we set up joint venture structures with local operators, with indiv individuals uh, to, to set up specific you know, farm operator or operating companies that are managing a farm. Uh, and we, we're making sure that what we want to see as a theory of change is happening in the field and there is a direct feedback. At the same time, the people are empowered enough, the local general managers and the farm managers and so on, they are empowered enough and knowledgeable enough and educated enough that they can make those decisions that are necessary. You know, they don't need to, oh, there's a problem and then they need to go all the way through back to Berlin to ask for approval to do something. That's not happening. Yeah. But I, I wanted to ask on the on the social side of it, because you mentioned earlier uh, that you went for a structure where you own uh, big farms. And so, you know, the structure is we're talking on 5000 hectares and I can see how that makes sense. Um linked to the investment necessities. You were mentioning that, you know, the, the type of investment investors you're talking to aren't going to invest in a kind of 10 hectare farm. But going forward, what kind of place do you see for small farmers? Do you think that necessarily uh, agroforestry and changing agriculture has to go through these uh, mega farms, uh, you know, owned sometimes by uh, an organization that's from somewhere else or, you know, whatever that, that centralizes so much land, or do you think that it will be able to, you, that it's, it's a possibility also for small autonomous farmers to, to play a part in the picture? That's a super difficult question. Um, but it's a question that we discussed quite a bit. Uh, so yes and no, I think there is more and more need for, um, uh, big professional farms that hopefully embrace an agenda for for good change you know um, to, to but to act to act as you know in a hub and spoke kind of way uh, in in an in a region in an area uh, to empower those smallholders to empower the small farmers i mean what what I guess you and I don't want to see is the kind of change that happened in most of European agriculture, uh, where you literally have no one working in farming anymore. Everything's largely mechanized and, 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 and at huge scale and, 
at the sacrifice of of biodiversity and 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 a whole social measure you know and um there are some reversing trends there of course but generally i think that is still true for i don't know north america and europe and, sure. and so on and so on so that's not what we want to see at the same time i think you cannot rely on i don't know um uh, donor programs and providing technical assistance to uh, to millions millions of small farmers and in particular in the tropics uh, well, almost all of the farming is uh, the production is still coming out of out of smallholder production you know so that needs to needs to get better it needs to become first of all it needs to become profitable and worthwhile for the small farmer um, and uh, there are only some ways how to achieve that, you know, that actually enough that is worthwhile doing that farming. Um, and my personal belief is that it will have to be a combination uh, that on the one hand, not everyone should be doing subsistence farming, you know, on a, on a tiny plot. Uh, but rather uh, you need some sort of um, concentration uh, at least a couple of hectares, you know, to make it worthwhile implementing those better farming practices and so on and so on. And then uh, making sure that these farmers are, you know, uh, benefiting from the hard work they put in and, and the knowledge they've been, that, that was transferred to them and that they applied in practice. And if that is not translated into higher prices they can achieve, then they will not do it. So that needs to happen. And at the same time, I think there need to be more aggregators out there such as our farms uh, but obviously also many others who are uh, acting as local hubs basically where the farmer can sell at a good price where he can get technical assistance from when he can where he can um, get knowledge from and, and and inputs and so on so i think it's a combination of having more aggregators or big farms that act as aggregators and not just in isolation and uh alleviating the the small farmer out of out of or out of poverty in the sense that not everyone can become a profitable farmer on one or two hectares of land i think that is not a possibility but if you can if you can bring up a, a big number to a level where it can actually generate a good source of income then i think much has been achieved I wanted to understand, you know, as a as a business, the the decision to invest in perennial crops, which have much longer cycles, seems risky in a time of climate change where it's so hard to uh, predict future weather patterns. And how are you managing these uh, to integrate these longer cycles, uh, both in terms of knowledge, because the feedback loops are longer with trees and perennial crops, and also in terms of harvests and returns. Mm -hmm. No, that's a good question. Um, so, yes, we are all about perennial crops. That's right. Uh, at least sort of at the core of our, our production systems. Um, and the, the lead times to production are much longer. So in, let's, let's say, uh, like with coffee, uh, it's, it's two, two to three years, but in cocoa, which, which we are a lot about, you're more looking at five to seven years. And the date palms we've been talking about, uh, uh, they, they take eight or nine years, you know, until they produce something meaningful. 
so that's an awful lot of time uh, in in which things can go wrong and then thereafter as well um, at the same time those are incredibly important components in a strategy that embraces climate change um, carbon sequestration uh, and uh, and and biodiversity so having having those uh, objectives at the same level as 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 profitable farming um, for us that leads to perennial crops uh, and it may be more challenging but at the same time i think it's more profitable long term it's more profitable than annual crops um, you have higher investments up front that is true you have higher longer lead times uh, so this is something that can only be overcome with with um, more patient investors who understand that they will not have annual distributions from that investment uh, in the first couple of years uh, but once you've overcome that then you have a very stable system you know if it is irrigated for example if it has a good management crew that knows how to manage phytosanitary risks and so on then you have a very stable system that you can run for 10 20 30 years depending on what you have there uh, and and you know uh, it, it delivers very highly on all these dimensions uh, and that's what you need to um, keep in mind so our change agenda is ambitious and so we thought that the perennial crops are the best way to achieve that the best way to get there we'll be moving towards the end of the the interview because we've been chatting for a while and I want to be conscious of your time um, and I was just wondering you know we're uh, on the podcast mainly focused on a temperate climate and with uh, agricultural as it's practiced uh, in the US and in Europe uh, in an industrialized context and do you see um, the potential for um, you know projects in Europe, I mean, not maybe specifically for your organization, if that's not the scope you've given yourself, but uh, do you think the, the type of projects you're uh, running now, uh, the methodologies could be transposable to, to large scale farming uh, in, in Europe or America? I think so, and I, I hope so. But I mean, you're right. Uh, our focus has been, as I said at the beginning, on those, those vulnerable uh, habitats and climate zones. So we're active in in the tropics we're active in in very dry environments and uh, well unfortunately those dry environments are coming to europe and to north america so um, uh, we may come with that if you see what i mean and i'm, I'm unfortunately i'm not joking so uh, in a sense what we're doing in morocco for example in terms of organic dates uh, uh, production and we're looking at many other models that can be done there at the moment for 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 further investments um you know the, the same vulnerability applies to uh, the south of spain uh the south of uh, south of france i mean we've uh, we've been on field trips in, in brandenburg surroundings of, of berlin where our head, headquarters is and this is these are some of the the lowest rain or uh, lowest rainfall uh, areas in the whole of Germany, very dry areas. And the, the, the centropic farm that we visited there is, had to do with, I think it was 300 uh, mils of, of, of rainfall a year, you know? That's not much, yeah, right? Yeah, that's very low. So 
and that's sort of 50 kilometers outside of Berlin. So unfortunately, I think what we're doing uh, is is very, very uh, relevant to uh, farming in, in temperate climate zones uh, for the future, because there will be less and less temperate climate zones, you know. So I think what, what we're learning there, you know, how to be successful in semi-arid areas, how to be, you know, how to be uh, organic producers or near organic producers in very wet tropical environments uh, and, and to keep those fungi at bay and so on. Uh, those things, I think, uh, are hopefully very valuable pieces of information data points that can be used uh, um, in, in temperate uh, climates in the future. Uh, and, you know, we're not exclusive to that. Uh, that we stay in the tropics and so on. We're, we're looking at potentially making investments also in the south of France and Spain, you know. But there must be an agenda or a theory of change attached to it. Um, ultimately, we're a mission-driven company. We're not just looking for the easiest way to farm. Uh, sometimes I feel that we're looking for the most complicated mm -hmm. way to farm. Mm -hmm. but, um, but you know what I mean. Uh, and those challenges exist in France, they exist in Germany, they exist in the US uh, or in northern Mexico. And um, and we will eventually, you know, if we can tap into more capital, then we will eventually go there. At the point in time, this point in time, um, we obviously also want to stay to the, the, the proven areas, you know, where people know that we can do this kind of agriculture in Mesoamerica. They know we can do it in Morocco. So uh, obviously it's easier to convince them to do more there or to invest for more uh, more investment uh, in, in those areas than to say, hey, let's go to other places. But we're pushing further into Africa. We're pushing further into, into Southeast Asia. That would have been our agenda already for, for this year if that little pand pandemic wouldn't have come uh, into our way. Um, and uh, and there's nothing that stops us from going into more temperate climate zones. Uh, and in any case, just to, to make that point again, uh, those are getting unfortunately more extreme as well. Sure. The 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 question of the need, I think, is it's clear that we we already need um, innovative techniques. The region where I am uh, has you know droughts. Uh, uh, basically every year now and it's clear that talking with farmers even those that are not interested in agroforestry or haven't you know determined itself they're very clear that the the first place to have green grass is under trees and the last place uh, where the animals can still eat is still under trees so there's definitely the need for it but I do agree with you I think um, uh, you know agroforestry in, in tropical uh, climates uh, is probably a safer bet. It's been used for far longer, and uh, the the heat and the access to plenty of light definitely, you know, lends itself well to these kind of stratified systems. And um, yeah, it's still something. You know, it's still a question I'm trying to understand. Is you know, to what extent, um, what types of techniques are uh, adapted to uh, Western or let let's say temperate climates? Clearly, hedges have been used for a long time. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have quite a, a skeptical mind in general, so I'm still trying to understand if putting trees uh, in the middle of a parcel is a good idea or not. And we haven't answered that in, in this context. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to answer my numerous questions. And um, thanks for doing so in such an interesting manner. I really enjoyed hearing about 
all of this. And um, maybe we can have you back in the podcast in a few years and follow your progress on these many exciting projects. Oh, thank you, Etienne, for giving me and us as one to trade the opportunity. It's uh, no very good questions. I'm happy that uh, we had uh, the opportunity to also to have the time to go in a bit deeper. And um, no, it would be great to come back at some point. So thanks. Thanks for making it this far, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. As usual, you'll find uh, all the relevant information in the description just below. And feel free to get in touch with us with suggestions for other episodes or some feedback through our website or social media. 